thank them for their work this week. If you have your copy of God's Word, uh, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 5, and if you don't have your copy of God's Word, boy, are you in luck, because we have extras. They're, uh, they're in your Pewback Bible, and I think we're on page, they all said, we get to turn a page today. It's very exciting, page 811, if you're in chairback Bibles. I'll give you a moment to turn there. I've once heard it said that if you don't have anything smart to say, find what someone else said who is smart. So we'll open with a thought by C.S. Lewis today, uh, who was a pretty sharp dude. C.S. Lewis uh, was actually criticized, and, and it makes you, you know, makes you feel better that if like C.S. Lewis is criticized and Jonathan Edwards and people like that were criticized, you go, okay, well, I'm in good company if people criticize me, right? So C.S. Lewis, there was a guy that wrote a critique on him and, and said, uh, that apparently he didn't care for the Sermon on the Mount. So he didn't care for it. And so they said, you know, uh, Clive. That was his first, it wasn't C. That wasn't his first. It was Clive, right? Staples was his middle name. You know, not a lot of kid named Staples at this point. Uh, that, that maybe has fallen out of fashion. But they said, uh, you know, what, what, do you, what is your response to what this man says about you not caring for the Sermon on the Mount? And, uh, and Lewis says, and I quote, As to uh, caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. So, we, we, uh, as we think about it, and we met and talked about what, what we would be walking through, and we thought, Sermon on the Mount, and you think, that'll be warm and fuzzy, let's do that. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? And blessed are the meek. And we think, well, that's good. Blessed. Blessed men gets to you. You've heard it said, and you go, uh-oh. <laughs> so we're in these antitheses, and we're talking about how our righteousness should exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And Nick has done, and Wes, is, as he preached, have done such a wonderful job about, about warming them as much as possible. But man, these things just hit you square in the face with a sledgehammer. Not only are you not to murder, okay, I can do that. Check. I cannot kill anybody today, right? Like, that's good. But you can't even be angry at anybody. Oh, come on, Jesus. Really? Right? Like, I can't even be angry? You know, all, all these, so, the, so Jesus is, as, uh, to, to, to quote a famous New Orleans chef, Jesus is taking the law and he kicked it up a notch. Bam. Right? So uh, he, we wrap up this portion of what we call the antitheses, the opposites uh, today, or, or the expansions of the law that began in verse 17 so let's review for a second Dale I know we turned our page which you might have to turn one back let's review for a moment and see what Jesus says in uh in verse 17 through uh 19 because it's going to be critical to our understanding of the passage today he says don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So in verse 19, Jesus speaks to relaxing the commandments. 
I want you to just put a little post-it note there because we're going to come back to that toward the end of this uh, discussion together. So just kind of put a little bookmark on relaxing the commandments. Jesus is saying, I'm not coming to relax them. I've come to fulfill them. He's come to kick it up a notch, as we said before. So then we get into all of these, you have heard it said. You have heard it said. Jesus is not speaking to an unwise crowd. They are hip to what the law says. They've been given the law since they were children. They've been told the do's, and most importantly, they've been told the don'ts. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. You know, in fact, probably a lot of people who are not inside of this bubble this morning would think that that we're in here talking about a lot of things that we don't do, right? Don't don't murder, and don't steal, and don't cuss, and don't, you know, all, all this sort of stuff that we talk about don't do. In fact, what we as a regenerate New Testament church, we talk about a lot is what we should do, what we must do. And so Jesus is actually speaking to, in our passage today, what it is that we should do, not it is that what, not what we should not do, which is a little bit of a contrast from where he's been. So let's pick up in, uh, in verse 43 of chapter 5, and we'll read all the way through 48, and then we'll, then we'll talk about it a little. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'm going to let that last part digest for a little while. We'll get there later, because if, if you're anything like me, you're going, okay, love your one another, perfect. We're going to get there in a moment. Let's, let's talk about love a little bit. Jesus' disciples display an uncommon love. Jesus' disciples display an uncommon love. So he's always quoting from something when he says, you have heard it said. You have heard it said. And then where they heard it said was most often from the law, from the Pentateuch, from the first five, where Moses has gotten gotten the law from God as to how the children of Israel, God's chosen people, are to live. So Jesus is quoting here from Leviticus 19.18, which he's going to quote a lot later on. In fact, he quotes this in, in Matthew 22 when somebody says, Hey Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is saying, that's the second commandment. Love God first and then love your neighbor as yourself. But we get that from Leviticus 19, 18. Jesus is even quoting from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus when he says these two greatest commandments. But notice what happens here in 43. You shall love your neighbor as you... Nope. It's not in there. He doesn't say you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He just says you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now how many of y'all, we're just going to take a little straw poll this morning. Look at your Bible. Look at verse 43. How many of y'all have something in quotes or have like block letters? If you could show me, show, look, I'm a school teacher. You got to raise your hand. All right, that's it. You have block letters or you have quotes or something like that. 
Check it out. If you go back and look at all the other stuff from 521 all the way through 43, when he says, you have heard it said, boom, block quote, and that's, and that's pretty much what he's quoting. And then he'll say, after that block quote, but I say to you. Now check out 43. It's different. It's different. Jesus is block quoting, quoting scripture, you shall love your neighbor, but then the quote ends. Do you see that? You shall love your neighbor and then and hate your enemy. But the, but the text changes there. Jesus is not quoting the Bible. At, in fact, at no point in that quotation does, does the law say, and hate your enemy. What Jesus is actually quoting there is, is he's saying, uh, he, he's, it's likely a teaching of the Pharisees. So there's this, this positive negative thing that we do as humans. If this is true, then this is not true. Or if we do this, then we should not do that. So this has become common practice that they would not just love their neighbor, but that they would actively, actively hate their enemy. This is not a condition of the heart. It is, in fact, the way that they respond to those that they don't see as one of us. One of us. So Jesus, when he says, you shall love your neighbor, he doesn't say as yourself. And the reason for that is he's not saying how to love. He's telling us who to love. He's trying to draw attention to the object of our love. The object of our love. So he says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. All right, well then who is my enemy? That's the question that we ask. You know, Roman, Roman writers in the day, the Jews are kind of in this sort of subsect of society. They're in this subsection of society that's governed by Rome. The, the, the big Roman Empire, the one that you heard about in social studies, right? Like the Jews are, are in, inside of that. They're governed by the Romans. And the Romans are kind of looking at these weird nomadic people who have somehow ended up in their care. And, and they actually think the Jews are so nasty to everybody else. They think it's part of their religion to be mean to everybody. There are a lot of first century Roman writers around that time that think that it, to, to be Jewish is actually to love Jews and to actively hate everybody else. So these come from two things. The, the Jews at that time, uh, the people of Israel, are looking at two different things. Number one, there's this idea of nationalism. There's an idea of nationalism. We are God's favored nation, and everybody else is not. Now, to be fair, there was a whole lot of smiting going on of all the ites in the Old Testament. You picking up what I'm putting down here? Right, like the Moabites and the Jebusites and the Canaanites and all the ites, like they, they ended up getting struck down or God used them to punish the children of Israel and then strike them down later. So they got this idea of nationalism that if God is for us, he is against them. And so we've got to be against them. There was a nationalism about the enemies that comes back thousands of years before this is being written, but there's also, the big New Testament, us versus them. The big New Testament, us versus them. There are the Jews, those to whom the promise is given through Abraham, and there's the Gentiles, who they see as outside of God's promise. So when Jesus is saying, love, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, or when that statement is being given, Jesus is quoting that here. He, he's quoting on this idea of, look, we love the people in our circle, and then everybody outside of our circle is them, and we hate them. 
We can't stand death. You know, this, this idea comes up later on in Matthew 22, as I, I discussed earlier, uh, also in Luke chapter 10. There's this really sharp lawyer, and you know, lawyers find a way to, if we have lawyers in here, it's, it's great. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. But lawyers kind of find a way to wiggle around and sort of try to find the nooks and the crannies of stretching the bounds of what, like it's still true, but how did I find that truth? And coming, I can kind of come around it from it, you know, that's being a good lawyer, is interpreting the law in that way. Well, a lawyer comes to Jesus, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus says, you know, keep the commandments. And he says, well, what, do you, what do you think the important commandments are here? And, and the guy says, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. So well, I, I know that part, Jesus. It's a great commandment. And the second one, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Jesus says, Jesus says these things. And the guy goes, okay, Jesus, uh, yeah, redirect your honor. Uh, who's my neighbor? So Jesus tells him a little story. It's a story that most of us are familiar with, I think. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so this, this Jewish man is asking, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells of a man who is robbed and beaten on the side of the road. And a priest comes by and he says, I'm in a hurry to get to church. <laughs> right? So I got to go. I can't help you, dude. I got to get to church. And a Levite comes by and I, I got to go make sacrifices. So I'm too busy to help you. And then the enemy comes by, the Samaritan. Ooh, right? Like they would shudder, the Samaritans. Ooh, like they would take, they would go like from here to Baton Rouge by way of Homa just to avoid the Samaritans. Right? They, just, they were going to try to go any way possible to avoid getting, getting into this with, the, with their enemy. And so Jesus goes, actually, that, the guy who acted was his neighbor. The guy who acted was his neighbor. See, here's the, here's the truth of the matter. The regenerate man uh, should not have enemies. The regenerate man should not have enemies. Jesus is saying, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. But, but for those of us who are in Christ, there, there is no enemy. Uh, and we treat the enemy as our neighbor. In the context of the Sermon of the Mount, though, the, the enemy is not just one that we have a disagreement with, who looks different than us, who thinks different than us. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the enemy is the one uh, who actively persecutes due to following Christ. Who's actively persecuting due to our following Christ. So let's, let's look at verse 44 here. But I say to you, Jesus gives us an action. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Alright, now if we were in English class... We would try to identify like subject and verb and direct object. And I'm still not sure what a participle is. If any of y'all can help me out on that, that'd be great. I, just, I think I fell asleep for that day. Uh, but, but we look through here. Let's look at this sentence in 44. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There are two verbs. Two verbs. What are they? Love and pray. Love is not an idea. It is a verb. Love is not an idea. It's a verb. And pray is a verb. It is something that we do. So we have to do something with our enemies, with those who stand in opposition to us for the sake of the gospel. By actively showing love to others, check it out, we may find that our heart follows our hands. We may find that our heart follows our hands. For, for those who would seek to do us wrong, who would seek to persecute us, 
by showing, actively showing, not just tolerance. It's not an idea of tolerance, but it actively showing them that we care about them. We are, dis- we are displaying the Imago Dei, the image of God in full effect. Isn't that cool? Have you ever, have you ever tried to get into a habit of doing something and you just kind of, you have to fight through it? Perhaps that's, uh, uh, that's a devotional, perhaps that's like brushing your teeth as a kid. Uh, perhaps that's, you know, whatever it is that you have to do. You know, I wouldn't call anybody out on that in particular. I'm sure your children just do everything that they're supposed to do at bedtime. And mine are the only ones that, like, you know, sometimes rebel, right? Okay, I'll try to be a better parent. You guys tell me what you're doing right. That's fine. Uh, But we find that by getting into these disciplines, sometimes our heart will follow our hands. You know, I have a desire to brush my teeth as an adult that I did not have as a child because I got into the habit of it. I go, you know what, this is all right. It's minty fresh. This is a good thing. Yeah, so... So in the same way, by doing for those who, are, who would be perceived as our enemies, we actually are able to train our heart. We're training our heart through our actions. There are a lot of things that my heart does not want to do. My heart, my heart does not want to go pressure wash my driveway. It just does not want to do that. I have to, y'all, unless you want to. We can talk. Look, I've, got, I've got five quarters in my pocket right now. Uh, but, but, but if my hands will do these things, we may find that my heart goes, this is good. This, this, this is a good thing. And these are really tactile, kind of silly analogies there, but you understand what I'm saying, yes? Our heart will follow our hands. What we do will eventually become the things that we cherish, the things that we value. So we love our neighbors actively. But then what's the second thing that he says? Pray for those who persecute you. Let me just tell you something. If you're ever mad at somebody, pray about them. Pray for them. We often pray for God to change our circumstances. God, I pray that you would, uh, I pray that you would give me a job, God. God, I pray that you would help my spouse to be more patient. I pray that you would help my kids to be more obedient. I pray that you would help my teacher in school to not be so mean, right? What, we pray that God will change our circumstances, that he'll change other people. Most of the time, that's not the way God operates. Are you aware of that? Most of the time, it's not the way God operates. You go, God, would you, God, would you please pray? Would you please make my spouse more patient? And you know what the Lord does? Because you're praying for your spouse, He makes you more patient and gracious toward them. God, would you, would you please make my kids more obedient? And by you continuing to pray, make my kids more obedient, you, you find that you treat your children with love and with compassion. And because they see that love and compassion, that they tend to want to obey more. God, help, help my teacher who's so mean and they're so difficult and I just give hard tests. By praying for that teacher, you find that maybe you pay a little bit more attention in class and all of a sudden the teacher makes a little bit more sense. See, God, God tends not to change our circumstances around us. God, God tends to change us when we pray. The object of praying for our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, is not for Him to change them. It's for Him to change us. That's the point. Jesus is saying, if you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, I don't know that that unregenerate man is going to change at all. That nasty so-and-so may stay nasty from now until they die. But he'll change you. He'll change the way that you respond to them. He'll change the way that you think about them. Our heart not only follows our hands, but our heart is guided as we say, Lord, take my will and make it yours. Take my will and conform it to yours, God. 
So prayer doesn't change them, it changes us. Jesus knows this. Jesus prayed a lot. Jesus was the master of prayer. Think about that. God incarnate prayed more than any of us do. That hurts. I'm going to move off of that. That hurts. That starts to get personal. Never mind. Our flesh says to pray for those who persecute you by saying, God, don't, don't you see how they treat me? You're so mean. Why don't you deal with them? But God's point is not to deal with them. God's point is to deal with you. You are his son. He, the ones inside the house is the one that he's worried about. So God wants to change us through praying for our enemies. Well, where do we see that in Scripture, Andrew? Are you sure about that? Are you making that up? I'm not. I'm not. In fact, Jesus gives us the example, as he so often does. One of Jesus' last teachings to us comes as they're driving nails into his hands and into his feet as a crown of thorns is on his head. And as he's being lifted up on a cross, how does Jesus model this passage? He says, Father, forgive them. They, they, they don't know what they're doing. Jesus prays for those who persecute him. If Jesus prays for those who persecute us, why, why, why would we think that it's optional? It's not optional. Not only do disciples display uncommon love, but disciples reflect God's common grace. Now the word, the word common grace is not like everyday grace. It's like common as in free to all. Like this is, you know, this is free to all. So look at, look at as, as we pick up in 45b, he says, uh, so, that, so that you may be, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Well, how does loving our enemies reflect God's love? In Romans uh, chapter 5, verse 10, and I'll, um, I'll allow you to sneak over there if you want to, but I'll give you the meaty part of it. Paul calls us enemies of God. We're enemies of God in our sins. Paul gives the good news a, a, a little bit later in that verse. But, but he refers to us as enemy. Well, wait a minute. Come on now, we're in the Bible Belt. Isn't God love? Doesn't God have to love everybody? How's God going to have in? Now, Andrew, that, does, that, that doesn't seem right. Are you sure? Well, let me check. Yep, it does say that. Okay, so we have to deal with that somehow. We have to deal with the fact that God is love and that we're enemies of God. You know, Wes came up with a great analogy. He says, uh, you know, if somebody bombs your backyard, you didn't do anything, but they're your enemy. God, God has not set us apart from him and said, you're my enemy. We have set ourselves against God and said, I'm your enemy. We did that through sin. So God is not actively, actively against us as an enemy. We, as rebellious sinners, were actively against God. We had declared ourselves His enemy from the moment that we drew our first breath. We were conceived in sin, and outside of Christ would die in sin. We are enemies with God outside of Christ. So yes, God is love. But we are His enemies. We've set ourselves against Him. So how then, by, by loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us, how, how then do we display, how do we, how do we show that we're sons of our Father? That doesn't make sense. Those, those who remain enemies of God, they will experience His wrath and anger against sin for, in full for eternity. But God shows us His love through, through what we call common grace. He shows it to both the regenerate, those who are in Christ, who've been made alive by the Holy Spirit, and those who are unregenerate, 
those who continue in their sin without thought to how it is striking against a holy and righteous God. But he shows grace to both, common grace. Uh, R.C. Sproul describes these two types of love that God displays universally. Think about how God loves his creation who sinned against him. Number one, there is a benevolent love. A benevolent love. This essentially means that God would be completely justified. Completely justified if at our first sin he goes and strikes us down. Because he is holy. And God tolerates no sin. So he would be totally and completely justified. No one can bring a charge against God when we sin if he struck us down and said, nope, you're out. And we rebelled against his creation. Nobody could say, God, that's not fair. No, it's, it's just. It's just. God could do that. But God is benevolent. He allows sinful man to continue to draw breath. That, whoo, think about that. He made us. He formed us. He created us. We sin against him. We declare ourselves his enemies. And he allows us to continue to live. To continue to sin. To continue to be. That's benevolent, that's kind, that's loving. But not only does he have a benevolent love toward us, but think about this, he has a beneficent love. A beneficent. Now the, the Ben, all right, I'm going to give you a little root word, not Ben Nickens, but Ben, like bien in Spanish, like it's good, right? These are, he, has a, he has a good love for us. He has a good and efficient love for us. So not only... Does he have a benevolent love, a good love in that he allows us to live? But he has a beneficial love, a a beneficent love. That he allows us not only to live, but to prosper. Look at what it says here in uh, verse 45. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, I grew up in East Tennessee and my grandmother was a hard-working farm girl. Hard-working farm girl. And she still gets up early, and, and she stays up late. My grandma, she's 84, and can run laps around here more than most of the kids. Uh, but but she, would talk about, she would talk about crops and these sort of things, and, and that was a little bit of a foreign concept to a kid that grew up in the burbs and, and you know, didn't really work with my hands a lot. But, you know, some of y'all probably have some experience of farming. Son, good thing, bad thing. Yeah. Everybody, even the city kids, would say sunshine is a good thing, right? We like the sunshine. It's pretty outside right now. It's sunny. It's nice. We can go outside and play and throw football and do all sorts of stuff. Roll in the grass. It's a good thing, right? But rain? I hated the rain. Oh, man, I hated when it rained outside. I couldn't go do anything. My mom made me stay inside, like read a book. Rain was horrible. But those of you that grew up outside that didn't eat farming, rain, bad thing or good thing? Yeah, to paraphrase a country song, rain is a good thing. That's right. It's a good thing. And so God is allowing the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. God is on the evil and the good, and he's sending rain on the just and the unjust. God would maybe be fair. It would be fair for him to only allow good things to happen to good people. And for the people who have declared him enemies, for God to be like, all right, then, I ain't going to send no rain. I ain't going to say no sunshine. It's going to rain on this side of the street and on that side of the street. Your crops are going to grow up and die. But God doesn't do that. 
He is beneficent. He is, he is so good to his creation that even with those who have declared themselves his enemies, he allows the sun to shine and the rain to fall so that they might have a harvest. That's pretty nice, y'all. Isn't that good? So God is loving his enemies. So when we love our enemies, we are sons of our Father. When people see us loving our enemies, they go, man, why would they do that? You know, that, if God is like that, that's pretty good. If they're people that love God, maybe... Maybe I need to look into that God thing a little bit. Does that make sense? Y'all with me? Y'all kind of staring at me like, I'm not sure about rain, and he's saying that little thing, and what is he talking about? Yeah. If we love our enemies, we are showing, we, we are on full display of the image of God, saying, even though you've declared yourself my enemy, I'm going to actively love you and pray for you. But then he asks a question, this is so good. I love when Jesus asks rhetorical questions because I can imagine everybody sitting there be like, I ain't saying nothing. <laughs> he says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? He, he's drawing as striking a comparison for his audience there as possible. So let me paraphrase that. If by loving only the people that love you, what reward is there? Terrorists love other terrorists. You ever thought about that? They're not all sitting in a cave in Afghanistan like going, I hate all of y'all. No, they get along with one another. They're all on the same page. Like terrorists love other terrorists. So if we just love other church people, like well, what difference is there? If we only love the people that look like us, that, that, that we have in common, who are in our denomination, who are LSU fans, who what like, right, all that sort of, well, I mean, we ain't saying nothing about Alabama fans. Now, look, come on, Jesus, let's be reasonable. But, um, but no, really, if we only love those who think like us, who look like us, who act like us, who talk like us, who go to the same church as us, who like the same kind of food as us, well, where's the nobility in that? Of course you would. Of course you would. I like everybody that's just like me. Fortunately, there's just one of them, right? So if we only like the people who like us, even the tax collectors did that, and they hated the tax collectors. Those lying, swindling cheats took all their money because the Roman government allowed them to do it, right? Oh, the tax collectors even do that. Jesus is going, oh, good, good for you. Good for you. You love the people that love you. Precious. And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. See, Gentile right here, Jew right here. I see him and I just go, nope. But Jew, Jew, hey, right? We greet those who are like us. So don't, don't even the Gentiles do that? He's saying, no, no, no. If you want to be different, if you want to have an uncommon love that displays my common grace, we show love to those who are different. We show love to those who, who maybe don't dress the way we dress. Who maybe don't talk the way we talk. We had an opportunity uh, a couple of years ago, Victoria and I did. I was a kid, he was 17 years old, um, and he was just really having a hard time at home. He got kicked out of his house. Uh, a band director called me and said, hey, look, would you, be, would you be willing to come just pick this kid up for like an hour and let him cool off? It was raining outside. And so if you could just like take him, and, and I said, I'll take him to dinner, and then we'll take him back to the house. Six months later, he, he left our home and was able to be reconciled with his parents. And so I find myself at the ripe old age of 20, I don't remember, uh, 
trying to parent a 17-year-old. <laughs> Good luck. Uh, but I found myself telling him that he, he had been into drugs, he, 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 he drank, and he, he, uh, he smoked, and I told him, you're not going to do those things in my home, and he was still kind of fighting some of those things, and I found myself telling him, saying, Justin, dude, you cannot hang out with people outside of, like, church. Like, that's it. Like, you have to hang out with only people who think like we think. Man, the Lord, uh, like, hit me in the head with a sledgehammer, like C.S. Lewis said. And I said, if he only hangs out with other believers, how is he ever going to show Christ to anyone? And so we had to redirect that a little bit and say, no, we don't do the things that the wicked do. But yes, we must engage people who don't think like we think. That is the only opportunity that we have to share the gospel. Sharing the gospel with other believers is good. We are to preach the gospel to one another and to remind ourselves of where we came from and where we are now, thanks to Christ. But it's not good enough. We have to greet those that don't look like us. So when, when we pull away from those people who use foul language, when we pull away from those people who are hateful, when we pull away from those people that steal from the company, we're losing opportunities to show them love. And the most loving thing that we can do for them is to share the gospel. It's not just enough to do kind things. To truly love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us is to say, do you realize, do you realize that God loves you in spite of you declaring yourself an enemy of him? And to share the truth of the gospel with them. Finally, we, we turn our attention to verse 48 where it says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, check it out. This is the bookend to verse 20. Go back to that. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he bookends that by saying, I've told you, not only don't murder, but don't be angry. Not only don't commit adultery, but don't even look at a woman in lust. Not only uh, should you not hate your enemy, but you love your enemy. And he says, essentially, in summary, and I'm trying to think about what the, what's the tone of what Jesus would say, and I don't want to go out too far on that. But like in our layman's terms, he would go like, essentially, just, just be perfect. Oh, <laughs> okay. No problem, Jesus. Good. Good talk, right? Like, be per- are you kidding me? Just be perfect? Surely Jesus does not mean just be perfect, right? right? I mean, he knows. I told you to put a post-it note there, didn't I? Like 20 minutes ago. Check it out. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Look at 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, we're not going to relax anything. In fact, Jesus has tripled down on what he was saying before. Not only did he say, blessed are these people, and now he's saying, not, don't murder, but don't even be angry. Like He's doubled down on the law, and now he's saying, essentially, you just have to be perfect. Well, even with the basic law before Jesus made it harder, right? Even with the basic law, it was impossible to be perfect. They had all these things set up to where you can only take so many steps on the Sabbath. Like all, this, all these little rules to keep. There's no way to keep the law. It's not possible to keep the law. So why in the world would Jesus say that we need to be perfect? We can't water that word down to meet our standards. See, the Bible can't mean today what it didn't mean then. We can't 21st century contextualize this and go, okay, I mean, nobody's perfect. Yeah, yeah that's the point. Nobody's perfect. Jesus is saying, 
be as perfect as your father. Be as perfect as my father. God, Yahweh, be that holy, righteous. The word there is teleos, which means blameless, righteous, or complete. In fact, as, as uh, Wes and I were kind of kicking stuff around this week, the same root there is uh, the, the root of the word to telestai, which Jesus uses to say it is finished on the cross. After he's done the fullness of the work and lived a perfect life, he says to telestai, it's finished. So that's the same root word that's there for perfect. He's speaking to the present in which he does recognize that he is the only one who will be perfect. Jesus knows what's coming at the cross. Jesus realizes that he is going to live a life that we could never live and die a death that we deserve to die so that he can be our perfection. As we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. He took our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes our sin and places it on himself, and he takes his perfection and he places it on us. Whew, because there's not another way out of verse 48 outside of Christ. There's no way for you to be perfect. He's not only speaking to our present, though. This is good. This is good. He's speaking to our future. See, today he is perfect for us. But tomorrow, in the future, he will make us perfect. He will remake us again in His image without the stain of sin, without the presence of sin, and certainly without the consequences of sin as we live eternally with Him. We will be perfected in the likeness of Christ, able not only to approach the Father in prayer through Christ, but to dwell with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit forever and ever as perfect. That's the good news of the gospel this morning. And there are probably two categories of people here this morning in, in our congregation. And I want you to hear me. There are two categories of people. There are the kind of people who read verse 48 and they say, you have to be perfect as God is perfect and you, and you recognize that you have no hope. There's no way. And you realize, I, I, I'm in trouble. And there's the second group of people who say you have to be perfect and they go, I'm in trouble. I can't do that. But Christ has done that for me. Christ is perfect. And he offers his perfection freely to all who would repent of their sin and believe. It's an opportunity that you have even this morning. If you find yourself reading verse 48 and that it, it knocks you down and it keeps you down because you have no hope. There is hope this morning in Christ. You can be made right. Christ can make you right with God. Would you pray with me? We'll have, uh, as, we, as the band comes, we'll have some elders down here. If there are things you want to pray about, these uh, steps are open as an altar. You're, you're welcome to come and let's pray together. God, I come to you as a man who has sinned and sinned and sinned. I have a great need, but I have a great Christ who is able to meet that need time and time again. 
and that we are not to sin so that grace may abound all the more, but that we may strive to be in your likeness even today. God, I pray that you would grant us grace as we strive to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. For those who are here this morning who may feel as though they have no hope, I pray that your Holy Spirit would make them alive, would cause them to see Christ for the beauty that He is. Lord, in all things that we do, may we give you honor and praise. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.